Hi, everyone, and welcome to the IPHO Student Podcast here at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. Join us as we discuss all things industry, from fellowships and industry careers to understanding what industry actually is. So stay tuned, and here we go. All right. Uh, hi, everyone, and welcome to the IPHO podcast at UNTHSC. Uh, my name is Quinn, and I'm here with a very special guest for our third episode, Dr. Kyle Emmett. Good to have you here, Dr. Emmett. Uh, how's it going? Going well. Yeah, glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I like to kind of start things off with uh, fun questions. And so I remember going to your office, and uh, I saw a lot of, uh, you know, figurines, and so uh, I knew that you were a big like Star Wars fan. Yeah. Um, was it Marvel too? Was Marvel? Uh, I don't. I like Marvel, but I don't think I have anything Marvel in my office. So I have a okay. little bit of everything. A lot of football paraphernalia, but yeah, mm. I, I have a. You probably saw my Chewbacca in my office. Yeah, I'm a big Chewbacca fan. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, so I kind of figured that you know if someone has that stuff in their office, then they have to be a Star Wars fan, That's right? right? That's right. And so uh, I had a few questions for you. Uh, nothing too crazy. Um, don't worry. Like I'm not judging you. Yep. Um, all right. So I, I just want to see how much of a Star Wars fan okay. you are. There. Fair enough. All right. So uh, first question. I feel like this is an easy one. Um, what type of crystals are lightsabers made out of? Um, I know the answer to this. Uh, lightsabers. Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on this one. No worries. That's the it's, first. No, yeah, that's supposed to be the easy one, right? So, um, if you tell me, I'm gonna know it, right? Yeah, um, I can give you a hint. Yeah, give me a hint. Okay, it starts with the K. Kyber. Yep, right? Kyber okay. crystals. Yep. Nice, nice. Yeah. All right, not bad. Um, let's see what I have here. All right, well, I don't want to go too hard. So, uh, let's see, who killed Qui Gon Jinn? That would be Darth Maul. Nice, Darth Maul. It was Darth Maul. That's yeah. correct. All right. Uh, sticking with the uh, the dark side here. <laughs> um, so we all know Emperor Palpatine was a Sith Lord. Uh, what was his uh, Sith name, though? Sidious. Yeah. Nice. Nice. You must have watched these movies over and <laughs> I over again. I watched them a time or two. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. Last one. Um, I have like two to choose here. Let's see. Mm, okay, well, this one's a little bit newer, okay. but I, f- I probably should start with this one. Um, who is Emperor Palpatine's granddaughter? Emperor Palpatine, it's uh, it's Ray, right? Yeah, it is Ray. Yep. Nice, nice. So you passed. All right. Um, <laughs> All right. I only needed one hint. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, you are to my in my eyes. Uh, Star Wars enthusiast expert. So, uh, congratulations Thank on you. that. All right, all right. So now, kind of, kind of g- getting into what we came here for. Um, I kind of want to go into like your journey of uh, becoming a uh, professor and also like your journey into industry. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, if you could just uh, like tell me your experience and you know where you, how you got to where you are now. Yeah, it was kind of a long and winding road, if you will. So I um, I went to high school about probably. 25 miles from where we're sitting right now in Weatherford, Texas. Graduated from high school in 1992. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just, I knew I was pretty good at science and and had some good science teachers that I think were influential in 
kind of some of my choices. And I remember my AP biology teacher gave back then, you know, I didn't, we didn't, you have the internet or you just things online. <laughs> she handed me a paper copy of a scholarship application. I'd already been accepted mm. to, to A&M and had been planned to go there. I mean, my parents named me after the football field. I don't think I had any choice, right? <laughs> um, so, but I, uh, I, I got this application and it was a $500 scholarship to major in chemistry at A&M. And um, I thought, well, you know, I like chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, most of your freshman years are the same anyway if you're in science, no matter what. So I thought, well, if I don't like it, I can always switch. And so that's how I ended up in chemistry. Right. And then I got there and uh, I liked it. Uh, and then I took organic chemistry my sophomore year and uh, mm-hmm. really liked that. I liked the So I was drawn to the idea of... Um, building molecules, right? So mm-hmm. putting putting smaller molecules together and building complex structures. And so I started to do research with a faculty member in that area and um, began to explore the possibility of getting a PhD in, in, in that kind of training in synthetic mm-hmm. organic chemistry. That led me to UNC Chapel Hill. Um, mm. I had had family in North Carolina, so I'd been to North Carolina a lot. So I think there was a comfort level, I, even though I was pretty far away from home. At least I was sort of familiar with the area, and there was some family in, in the neighborhood if I needed to reach out to them. So right. I moved up to Chapel Hill, spent the next five and a half years there doing a total synthesis of natural products. So they would we'd take these complex molecules that come from nature and try mm-hmm. to make them synthetically, you know, using different organic chemistry reactions. And it was great training, problem solving, resilience, because almost nothing worked the first time. Yeah. And um, and then the choice came down to, well, what kind of career do I want to have? I mean, it, it was not as well planned out as you would think. It was it was like, I like this, so I'll continue studying it. And then I got to a place where I was like, well, what, what can you do with this degree that I'm in the process of getting? And right. one of the things I was drawn to was medicinal chemistry in a drug discovery setting because it seemed like to me that was a way to take these skills and this knowledge and be able to have a chance to apply it to something that could really be meaningful, mm. um, to have a chance to discover a new drug that, that you know, potentially cures disease or helps people live longer, feel better. I just mm-hmm. seemed like a rewarding way to spend your time. And so I started to pursue that. Um, interviewed with a number of different pharmaceutical companies, both small and large, and mm-hmm. moved about 10 miles down the road to GlaxoSmithKline right there in Research Triangle Park. Um, at the time, GSK was the second largest pharma company in the world. So it's a big, big company. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, it was great training. I learned medicinal chemistry. Everything I learned about, everything I learned about PK and pharmacology and drug discovery, I learned there and uh, mm. in subsequent stops because uh, my, my academic training was all just pure organic chemistry. And mm. um, so was there almost seven years, uh, made a move to academia, went to Vanderbilt where I was part of the Center for Neuroscience Drug Discovery, switched from oncology to neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But it was an interesting group because it was a large group of a lot of people like me that had come from industry, made the move to academia, and were trying to really discover drugs in an academic setting, which is something that at that time wasn't very common. It's more common now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, good training for me, though, because I got to do a lot more training of students and postdocs. I got mm-hmm. to teach a little bit, found out I really enjoyed that. Nice. And um, and got a chance to learn some other things that are important in academia, like how to write grants and how to how to 
operate in that world, uh, which is really mm-hmm. important. And uh, then in 2015, I had a chance to come here, uh, back home. Uh, made full circle. It took me 19 years to get <laughs> yeah. back, but I made it. And um, got a chance to join this new college of pharmacy. They were looking for a medicinal chemist. And I remember the ad like it was yesterday because I read it. And it said, looking for a medicinal chemist with experience in oncology or neuroscience. And I thought, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like they wrote it for me. So right. I, I had to apply and come here and uh, and it's been great. So really excited. Uh, just, But I think for me, it was just a matter of being aware, uh, open to opportunities and mm-hmm. uh you know, I'd love to tell you it was all perfectly planned out, but it was really more about responding to opportunities as they presented themselves. Right. It's super interesting that, um, you know, you like chemistry. And that's kind of the basis of pharmacy yeah. is chemistry. Yeah. Um, so you talked about um, moving to North Carolina and Glaxo, uh, Smith Client. So I'm kind of wondering, were there any other, uh, you know, companies like what What made you choose Glax? Uh, I'm sorry, Glaxo? Smith Klein. Yeah, you said GSK. It's a GSK, lot easier. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. So actually, I would say back then, in terms of a like large pharma landscape, it was larger than now because there's been so many mergers in the last 20 years. Especially if you look at the Midwestern part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there used to be these you know huge companies. You probably heard of some of them like Searle and Monsanto and Park Davis and Pharmacia and Upjohn, Pharmacopeia. Um, they've all been absorbed into other companies now. Mm. And, and it seems like more and more of the large pharmas heavily localized in the upper Northeast, mm-hmm. mostly around like Cambridge, Mass, some in New Jersey still, but more so mm-hmm. in Cambridge, Mass, and then out on the West Coast in the Bay Area. Uh, San Diego still has a pretty decent-sized uh, pharma sector. And then you've got a few Midwestern companies like Lilly and AbbVie in, in uh, Indianapolis and Chicago, and then you've got mm-hmm. GSK and um, and Merck, which are primarily in, in Philly now. So the, the North Carolina sites that I worked at are still there, but they're not doing R&D like what I did. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of casting a wide net. I interviewed, um, interviewed at GSK at Merck in Philadelphia, outside Philadelphia. I interviewed at a biotech company called Array Biopharma, which is was out in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and um, and then mm. Procter & Gamble had a pharmaceutical division at that time, um, and mm. they were outside of Cincinnati. I got offers from everybody but Merck. Um, I don't know if I would have got an offer from there or not. They, they were still interviewing people when I made my decision, and um, mm. I, I just was, uh, I, I think I was, I'm, you know, was kind of drawn to a, a little bit uh, an older, more established company. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that could potentially bring to my career, getting that level of experience. There was something exciting about being part of, you know, one of the big kind of four or five, you know, it was you know, Pfizer, GSK, Novartis, Merck, mm-hmm. um, were these big companies. I thought there'll be some really smart people there to learn from, and it'd be, you know, resources would never be a problem. You'd have, the, you know, all the funding you would need to do the research. And so I, and it was, mm. it was close. My wife already had a job in the area. It was an right. area I knew I liked to live. You didn't have to wonder, would you like to live there? So I think it mm. was an easy decision for me to go to GSK. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I've actually had some experience uh, with interviewing for different companies. Yeah. Uh, I actually had an interview with Alcon. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm one of the only, you know, drug companies in Texas. Yes. Um, and so I kind of look back at the experience because um, 
I was asked like certain questions that I had no clue. They were like from left field. And so I kind of want to get your take on, you know, if you remember some of the questions that they asked you and, you know, how were you able to like, you know, come through strong and answer them correctly, I guess. Yeah. And interviewing's changed a lot in 20 years. I mean, when I started mm-hmm. out, it was always um, pretty standard. You come in first thing in the morning and you give a scientific presentation on the research that you had been doing. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times the questions would all just be related to your own research, which in a way is challenging because you definitely don't want to mess up on your own research. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, it's something that you know the most about. So it, right, it makes right. you more comfortable. I remember at GSK they interviewed that one. They started showing me some of their work, and then they asked me like, "Well, how would you make these compounds?" Oh, and wow. for, fortunately, I, I had a reasonable proposal for them. So, um, nice. I think I, my my philosophy on interviewing is, if you can, it's always better to come with a story that illustrates the point you're trying to get across, rather than just tell the interviewer something. Just as an example. If you want to portray, if it's appropriate in that question, to portray that you're an empathetic person. If you can mm-hmm. tell a story that demonstrates that you're an empathetic person rather than just say, oh, I have a lot of empathy and I really, you know, it's, it, it, I think it's more powerful because it feels more real to people. So mm-hmm. I, I always try to revert to that, to, to tell a story if I can, um, to be... To be honest, if you don't know, you just say, oh, I don't, I don't know. That's a great question. I, I need to think mm-hmm. about that. And, you know, if, in, if you want to go the extra mile, you can always say, like, I make sure I get your email address and I'll think about it and send you an answer in, as a follow-up. So mm-hmm. um, I think because there's nothing, no, there's no shame in, in saying you don't know in science, right? That's kind of fundamental of science to say we don't know. We're mm-hmm. trying to get more information to get us further along the path to, to a place where we have a hypothesis. And then mm-hmm. we want to test that hypothesis. And then maybe we'll say, well, we think this is what's happening. Uh, but always reserve the right to say, you know what? We can maybe get new data later on and we can refine that. And, and so I, I just think that's been my philosophy when it comes to interviewing. That's a good point. Uh, it was funny. I was actually talking to a P2 student who's in IPHO. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how uh, when he prepares for an interview, he actually Googles the people and tries to find out their hobbies and you know, tries to uh, compare and see, you know, if they line up so he can be ready. So I think that's um, smart. I mean, I always did that when I was going to when, when you're going to it's easier when you're going to an academic institution because uh, you don't have to do as much detective work because everything's mm-hmm. publicly available. Everybody has a bio. But I would right, always right. read it and at least at the very least be familiar with like, OK, what are their research interests? What are the things that they're working on so that I can at least kind of have a, a cursory knowledge and it automatically gives you something that you can talk about? Because mm-hmm. one of the questions that you're inevitably going to get uh, on an interview is that when they finish asking you questions, they're going to say, what are your questions for me? Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, definitely. Uh, and I tell people all the time, you shouldn't be you shouldn't feel bad if you have if you ask the same question to multiple people when you go on a job interview, because one of the things I'm looking for is do you get the same answer? Because if you get the same answer, it's probably a, a, a general culture uh, and indicative. It's not just this one person is really happy with this. It's like if, you, if a lot, multiple people say, you know, what's really good here? It's this thing. Then mm-hmm. then that probably is indicative that it is pretty popular and is part of the, the general culture of the institution. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of reminded of, um, you know, since you applied, you said that you already had like a PhD. I, I, I mean, I had just graduated um, and well, I had defended 
and uh, I was scheduled to graduate in December of 2020, of 2021, excuse mm-hmm. me. And, uh, and then, so I graduated December of 01. I started at GSK mid-January of 02. So I, I tell people, like, I ran my last reaction in my organic chemistry lab of graduate school two weeks before I started. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and most people take a bigger break than that, but I wasn't relocating, and I still had a project that was ongoing. I was trying to do things and make them work. And so, yeah, mm. for me, it was a pretty quick transition uh, from that point in time. But I was interviewing for jobs that required the Ph.D., so it, oh, okay. so it was necessary for me to tell them, yeah, I'm going to graduate in December. I can start in January. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I was actually going to ask about, um, you know, if you were competing against people who had PharmDs. Not for the jobs that I was going after. I was going for um, what what you might think of as sort of um, like preclinical mm-hmm. R&D drug discovery. Um, and, and in the beginning, it was mostly bench work. It was mostly me going into the lab and making compounds. As I got more experience, they, I got people that had, you know, bachelor's and master's level education in chemistry, and they started to, to report to me, and I began to direct their work, and then eventually mm-hmm. became project leader, where once you become project leader, you get more out of the lab because you're doing more administrative management level type aspects of a, a project. But, um, but mm-hmm. yeah, so we were, everybody in our group was, either had PhDs or a master's or a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And um, the PharmDs uh, that I worked with were, Primarily um, more on the like clinical medical affairs, um, mm-hmm. medical science liaisons. I met folks that were that were MSLs while I was there. They, they MSLs, I think by and large. I don't know what the stats say now. I remember when I, I met somebody at GSK. He said, "Oh yeah, ninety percent of the MSLs here are PharmDs." Um, okay. I, I have a theory on that. <laughs> I have a theory because I think that in general, uh, PharmDs get more training in communication. Mm-hmm. than your average PhD uh, does. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's such a critical part of the MSL job is to be an effective communicator of information. And mm-hmm. I think PharmD, the type of education that you get really prepares you for that type of career. Definitely. Yep. I agree. I remember someone telling me about, um, you know, PhDs are super smart, but they're working with animals most of the time, you know. Animals are test tubes, right? Right. So... so. <laughs> You yeah, can't really there's some truth to that, and, yeah. and it's and it's one of the challenges that you see um, that every company uh, that's that's R and D heavy like that deals with is because oftentimes the the most brilliant scientist mm-hmm. doesn't make the best manager or administrator. Right, so right. Um, I got some good advice from a guy that I interviewed with at Merck. I'll, I've never forgot, and I've tried to tried to live by it. He told me he said, "Well, one day when you become a manager." Make sure that you have people smarter than you on your team," he said. Because he said that's what makes a good team is when is when you know the people um, that you're directing are are even smarter than you are, and they can accomplish things that you might not even know how it's going to get done, but you know they can do it. So, right. I think that's totally true because the skill sets that you need to be a, a manager administrator are not necessarily the same as to be somebody who who's you know great at the bench or has brilliant ideas for experiments that mm-hmm. if you find that person where they overlap it's it's pretty remarkable right now i think it's always a good thing if you're a very accomplished professional and yet you're the weakest link mm-hmm. in the group absolutely so um all right so you talked about you how you moved into like a senior level position um, so kind of give me what, on your take on, um, 
you know, what it takes to lead an interdisciplinary team? So I think multiple things. Uh, some of them are obvious. You have to be organized. Um, you have to be dependable. Um, but I think there's other things, too. You have to strike a, a good balance between I need to learn enough about what my colleagues' discipline is so that I can speak their language and they can speak mine, right? Because we mm -hmm. have to work together to move this project forward. But I never want to come across as, like, I'm trying to be the expert in their discipline. So you right. want to remain um, humble and and respectful of the fact that, hey, you're the expert in this area. I'm just the person that I'm the expert in my area. And together mm -hmm. we can do more than we could do uh, independently. And so I think mm -hmm. that's that's striking that balance to where you ask the right questions, you provide the right insight, but you don't come across as somebody who's trying to tell somebody how to do their job. Because mm -hmm. a successful, in, somebody who leads a, an interdisciplinary team successfully is somebody that lets the individual experts be the expert mm -hmm. and lets that drive the decision-making process. And I think you have to be willing to say, oh, man, I was wrong. I um, I thought this was this pathway was going to take us to success, but you know mm -hmm. what? We need to we need to step back and reevaluate, and we need to try something different because this I don't believe any longer that this path is going to lead to a successful outcome. But mm -hmm. maybe I want to go a different direction. So you have to be flexible, willing to admit when um, the first idea didn't work and second idea needs to be tried. And and then I think just somebody who creates an environment where people regardless of one thing I really liked about GSK mm -hmm. was I mentioned that we had, you know, PhDs and masters and bachelor's level chemists mm -hmm. all working on a team. And of course, we had a hierarchy, of course, right, where, mm -hmm. you know, everybody had a manager. Um, you know, even the director had a, had a manager, the vice president. But once we got to the table to do science, everybody's ideas were on the table. So you, you, know, you could be a bachelor level chemist, but if you had a really good idea, we wanted to hear it. And that happened very often where people, and, and that gives people ownership, that gives people, they're invested, they're engaged, mm -hmm. and that gives the most effective team. So I think making sure that all ideas make it to the table um, mm -hmm. That's that's the job of the team leader um, that, you know, you don't just you don't shut down those ideas. You don't, um, you know, favor one group because of preconceived notions about their education level or something like that. Because this mm -hmm. person over here, uh, they might have less experience, but they might have the best idea. So, Right. I think that's kind of what the school is doing with the uh, being like emphasizing its professional education. Absolutely. Um, and so you mentioned how you worked with, uh, you know, p people with PhDs, masters. Uh, so I'm wondering, was it always a person with a PhD that was always like the interdisciplinary? The inter leader? Yeah, the leader pretty no, much. No, it actually wasn't. So, um, and that, that does vary from company to company. I, I, to be fair, most of the team leaders had PhDs. But um, I actually have a, a, someone I still consider a friend to this day, and, and we hired him as a master's level chemist. Um, mm -hmm. He's a brilliant guy. Um, could have easily gotten his PhD if he'd chosen to do so. Um, mm -hmm. And he worked for me at GSK for, for I think, about three years. And uh, he's a team leader in Novartis now. So, mm -hmm. I mean, and uh, when I was at GSK, there was a woman there that she had started at GSK with a master's as a bench-level scientist. And she was, mm -hmm. um, she was a director when I left. I mean, she had risen to the ranks where she had multiple PhDs that reported to her. Oh, so, wow. I mean, it's... 
So it, some companies, um, some companies are probably better than others. But uh, when I was mm-hmm. there, at least, it was the type of environment where you could rise through the ranks um, if you if you demonstrated that you were capable and success and could be successful. So. Okay. So now that you're um, in academia, uh, do you kind of see this as your final, um, the final stop of your career? I ho- I think so. Um, you know, okay. but to be fair, but going back to my own story, it's um, I I didn't know. I, I've never been the type of person that has. And this is gonna sound bad, but I guess what am I gonna? It's just the truth. I've never really been good at the five year plan. Um, mm. It's kind of okay. What what are the goals today and and maybe for the next year or two and, and where do I want to be and what do I want to accomplish? Um, I think so. I, I, I all I've ever said about career wise is I just I want to be in a place where I feel like I can make a difference, have mm-hmm. an impact, and academia is such a great place. I always say to people, academia has a lot of problems. I don't know <laughs> if you know that, but it does. Um, academia has a lot of problems, but mm-hmm. um, but you know what? It's the only place you get to work with students, and. Um, and I think that's what makes it worthwhile. Uh, and if you don't want to work with students, I don't know why you would be here, right? Because right. it's like that's that's what we're here to do. And so you talk about have the potential to make impact. Well, mm-hmm. being an educator and having the potential to you know just play a small role in a student becoming who they're going to be on their career journey. It's like you have the you have so many more chances to do something meaningful because mm-hmm. even though it might be that. You know, I just played a really small role in helping them understand metabolism of opioid drugs better or something, right? It's like, but yeah. but you but you had an impact and you and you played a role, and so I think mm-hmm. that's what I, I like the most about academia is seeing seeing students be successful and grow, and 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 then seeing them go off and do do all the things that they're going to do, and then you know academia, did I guess the big differentiator between academics and industry is mm-hmm. um, in academia have more freedom to work on ideas that you think are interesting, but you have to convince somebody to pay for them. <laughs> so you have to go out and, and convince the funding agency to give you the grant uh, so that you can do the research. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're in a company, um, of course, the funding comes from, you know, the investors and the, and the, the revenue. And mm-hmm. but you might not have as much freedom to I mean, you, you might have a voice at the table to say, what project are we going to work on? But ultimately, mm-hmm. that decision is made much higher up than than most of the people that work on the project. And right. so you might be a little bit more narrow in what you get to work on, but you don't have to worry about who's going to pay for it, because mm-hmm. if they're committed to the project, at least for as long as they're committed to it, they're going to they're going to continue to fund it now. There might come a change. You get a change in leadership, new CEO, and maybe they decide, you know what, that part of our portfolio we're not going to emphasize anymore. And so you could find yourself on a new project the next day, even mm-hmm. if you didn't get to finish everything that you thought that you started. And so that can be frustrating, I guess. But it's that that's the main difference that I see. Okay. And I know we got a uh, – I read somewhere that you and THSC got funded, um, a new NIH grant for, I believe it was Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And so um, – I guess kind of sticking to funding, um, I know that you are a research professor. Um, so is there any, like, research opportunities that you have available for students maybe, like, in the next year or even um, now that they may be interested in? Yeah, I would say um, not not this fall probably uh, and maybe not this spring. It depends. But usually, uh, usually I end up taking one or maybe two pharmacy students um, for the summer 
who maybe are interested in a research elective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I always tell students is if they're interested, come talk to me. It's kind of first come first serve. <laughs> I, I don't have the largest lab because, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm never, I, I told somebody the other day, I, I don't care about square footage. I care about square feet of hood space because <laughs> almost everything we do is in a chemistry fume hood. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for students and, and so many of our pharmacy students are, have a chemistry background, you know, maybe they were chemistry majors or chemistry minors or, or mm-hmm. they just kind of, they, they gravitate towards that. And so, you know, I tell students, hey, if you're interested in doing chemistry, but you want to do chemistry that, that has a, a motivation uh, behind it to, to, you know, discover molecules that engage different drug targets, then come mm-hmm. talk to me and I can kind of tell you a little bit about what we do. Um, I always have to give the disclaimer, though, because I realized after about my second or third rotation, uh, some students uh, were disappointed because um, I'm almost never in my lab. Um, so usually if you if you come work with, in my lab, you'll work with the, the graduate students or the technicians mm-hmm. that that work in the lab. I, I stop by, um, you know, from time to time and, and do some things and, and, and offer advice here and there. But um, the teaching, department chair, uh, different service components, uh, writing grants, writing papers, that, that keeps me pretty busy. And so I'm not actually mm-hmm. in the lab doing uh, doing experiments. So, But I also say, um, you know, to answer your question, also, since I am department chair, I have a mm-hmm. you know pretty good working knowledge of all the research that goes on in pharmaceutical sciences. So I'm mm-hmm. also a great place to start if a student just wants to hear more about all the research that's going on, and I can direct them to the appropriate faculty member so they can have like a, a more detailed conversation. Nice. So just a disclaimer: if you decide to do research with Dr. Emmett, he may not be there. It may not be with him. I, I, I will not be there rubbing elbows with you in the, in the <laughs> chemistry in the chemistry lab. But so. But you, you get a chance to, to if, like I said, if you like organic chemistry, um, you get a chance to see what it's really like in the real world. So nice. All right. Um, so I kind of I'm kind of backtracking here, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, was Texas uh, always your goal? I know you said it was like what 17 years. 19, I think 19, 19 years. years. Um, so you know, was come back to Texas always your goal? I think so, um, although I didn't know I would make it before I retired. Um, <laughs> you know, I, um, I, was, I was born in, in Tyler in East Texas okay. and uh, bounced around multiple cities in East Texas, Tyler, uh, Huntsville, Mount Pleasant, and then back to Tyler. And then I, <laughs> then I finally moved to Weatherford right before I started my freshman year of high school. So that, that, okay. that brought me to the, sort of this um, DFW. Metroplex, mm-hmm. and then of course went to A and M for undergraduate, and then left Texas. And um, I, I like North Carolina a lot. Um, you know, if anybody ever considers a research triangle area, it's it's a great place. Um, great beautiful, scenery, right? Beautiful. I mean, yeah. just a beautiful area. Um, a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds that have moved to that area. And then um, Nashville, I sort of feel the same way about just a really cool area. Um, both places, if they have an advantage on Texas, is you get four real seasons, right? <laughs> you don't just go straight from summer to winter. So right, you actually right. get a real spring and fall there. But um, yeah. but I think for me, this was home. My kids grew up where I grew up was, was pretty cool. Family so. here. Mm-hmm. My kids graduated um, from and, uh, from Alito High to go School to last year. And that's, games, that's where which is exciting my uh, uh, that's where their uh, maternal grandmother graduated so from. Like, so. Almost um, 60 years so, before, you know, right? So oh, wow. You know, it's kind of crazy, right? So yeah. Just a chance to have how that works. But uh, So, I mean, you mentioned I'm a big football fan. You yeah. mentioned uh, Texas A&M. 
Uh, I know the Twelfth Man is, yeah. you know, super popular. I'm wondering, was it that big, you know, when you were in college as well? It, you know, the, the tradition was exactly like it is now. You know, we st- mm. we all stood for the whole game, and the student <laughs> section was was big. It's not as big as it is now. So my daughter's actually a freshman at A and M now, and um, oh, I nice. just saw the enrollment. It's it's just it's it's probably. You know, it was around 40, 42,000 students at A&M when I was there. And mm-hmm. now I think, um, you know, it's getting close to 70,000 or something. So oh, it's, wow. it's a huge, huge institution. But, but you know, but I would say um, a lot of things that my daughter's experiencing now, I, when she tells me about it, I'm like, yeah, I, I remember that. It <laughs> hasn't changed that much. So, yeah. Nice. You know, they, they do a good job of, of, um, of, helping students acclimate and kind mm-hmm. of pass on those kind of traditions to, to the next generation. So, right. Yeah. Well, Hey, they're, they're doing a great job yeah. of keeping it going. That's yeah, for they, sure. they are. They are. So, yeah. Um, all right. So I kind of been wondering, um, since we mentioned earlier that there are many different companies, you know, mm-hmm. in you know, Northeast, um, California, some in the Midwest. And so I did have a conversation with uh, another professor and I was just kind of getting your, I want to get your input on what do you think it would take for uh, pharmaceutical companies to kind of move down to Texas? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think there's a tax benefit somewhere in there. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on like um, the, you know, climate, but, but you know, I, I, I read articles and mm-hmm. see, see things. And, and I think like if you look at what's gone on in Austin the last, you know, 20 years, I mean, some people say it's almost like a, a miniature Silicon Valley, right? So mm-hmm. it's not that technology industries don't want to be in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, so there's a history of multiple, you know, think of companies like Dell and I guess now Tesla's here, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think with pharma, it's, it's almost like, I mean, we, we obviously do have Alcon that you mentioned. Uh, Galderma mm-hmm. is here. Um, mm-hmm. Riata Pharmaceuticals is up, up here in, in DFW. And there's, and there's a lot of what I would call smaller biotechnology companies here, there. But mm-hmm. you, but if, if you're asking me what would it take for a Pfizer or a Merck, or <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think it, yeah. it, it almost would take somebody um, who really wanted to – to shake things up and, uh, mm-hmm. and and do something dramatic. So I think probably a more likely scenario in the near term is that you get more people that are entrepreneurial. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's, that's increased a lot over the last 15, 20 years is what some people will call virtual drug discovery, which is, it's kind of a misnomer, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you've still got to make compounds and test them. Mm-hmm. But what what somebody means when they say I have a virtual drug discovery company means is they have a bunch of, they have a, a core group of people, like they might have a chemist, they might have a pharmacologist, they might have somebody whose expertise is, you know, drug metabolism and pharmacokinetics. And then they subcontract to companies to do so the chemist might have ideas and he'll subcontract to a company to actually make the compounds and then the pharmacologist will subcontract to a company to test the compounds. Same thing with the DMPK folks and, and so on. So mm-hmm. when they're, they're virtual, it just means, hey, we don't have wet labs. Everything we do is in computers and in, 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 in the virtual world. But they're mm-hmm. still using uh, these, what some people call contract research organizations or CROs to actually do the wet, the wet work. And mm-hmm. so, I, you know, you could imagine setting a company up like that in Texas is completely feasible and doable. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and I know there are companies like this that exist already. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if you see more of that um, because you can imagine that 
if you think about these large uh, pharma organizations, the, just the investment they have in buildings mm-hmm. and infrastructure and really expensive equipment that would be really expensive to move or replace. Yeah. So it's a it's just a it's just a tough ask to um, to think that they now I I will say um, mm-hmm. not 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 nearly as far as Texas but. Novartis relocated um, the vast majority of their research from New Jersey to to the to the Massachusetts area about mm. 10, 15 years ago. So I have, I mean, there's at least one case where somebody made a move, but it wasn't that dramatic. Right. Yeah. So, but I think I think smaller companies that that might get get bought or incorporated, and then maybe instead of just getting bought and then they go away, maybe a company decides, hey we really believe in what you're doing and we want to invest in your company and grow your company. That could be a, an avenue towards getting more uh, drug discovery uh, pharma in, in, in this state. Mm. Yeah. And I know there's also the, uh, just being close to the, I guess, was it just the seas, you know, travel, it helps if you, if you want to build your company overseas, being, um, you know, close to water helps a lot. A lot. That, that helps. And then, um, you know, we're fortunate in that um, the DFW, airport it i mean it flies almost anywhere now right and so mm-hmm. i mean it's a major hub not only with the united states but for international travel and so that's a mm-hmm. that's a that's a big selling point um you know uh but like i said there's this right now things are just so dominated by the two coat by you know and mostly the bay area and and and, and boston mass really i think is where mm-hmm. the, the, and then, then you've got these pockets like i said you know philly and indianapolis and chicago have have some places as well, but it's, it's interesting how it's changed over the last two decades. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about virtual drug develop, drug discovery, right? And so I think about the preclinical service group here. Mm-hmm. Is that like an example of? Um, yeah, so preclinical know? services, um, which is uh, run by uh, uh, Dr. Jerry Samaka and, mm-hmm. and Mr. Bill Weiss, who are faculty in our um, in our department. Uh, they are. I, not exactly, but would be similar to a, a what that contract research organization is is that that I talked about, except they operate within this this academic institution. Mm-hmm. And so you might have a virtual company, let's say th- their specialty is infectious disease, uh, mm-hmm. specifically things like antibiotics and antifungals. So mm-hmm. you might have a company that um, maybe that company's virtual. And so they need a reputable group that has expertise in doing animal studies to evaluate um, the, you know, antifungal agents. And so they might mm-hmm. they might actually reach out uh, to preclinical services and, and say, hey, we have these molecules. You know, we're we're trying to move these from discovery and move them into first time in human studies. And we need to get these pivotal studies done in rodents to show that they're efficacious and that they don't cause adverse effects. Mm. Well, then preclinical services can come along and say, yeah, we do that sort of stuff. And then they would they would work out a, a contract with them. And uh, the right. contract would be for very specific types of work. They've actually contributed to multiple uh drug discovery development programs where they can mm-hmm. actually say, yeah, that, that drug that's on the market, we played a we played a role in that. You know, we did some pivotal studies. Um, mm. in vivo that helped enable the, the approval of those agents ultimately. So I think that's pretty cool and, uh, and something that's pretty unique uh, within um, academic institutions is to have a group like that that's mm-hmm. done so much um, with respect to, to drug development. 
research. But yeah, they do it kind of on, on a contract by contract basis. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Okay. I never knew that. Yep. Um, all right. Well, kind of wrapping things up sure. here. Um, so, what advice? Um, well, before I ask that, I mean, you've you're very accomplished. You've worked at GSK. You're now working as a um, professor at UNTHC. So I'm kind of wondering, like, if you could go back in time, you know, would there be anything that you would change? Maybe like yeah, different I, job. I, I thought about that. Um, and I think so. If I could go back to my younger self and give advice, mm. besides like buy stock in Amazon, right? <laughs> Something besides that, right? Yeah. Um, if I could go back to my younger self, I think what I would say is don't be so focused on the future that you miss the present. Um, because I think in my younger career, I was so caught up in, okay, what does it take to get promoted? What does it take mm. to, what do I have to demonstrate to be a team leader? What do I have to demonstrate to, to make uh, management confident to, to allow you know, people to to report to me so that I can direct their work. How do I, mm-hmm. how do I begin to build this resume? Um, right. and, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, like getting promoted, getting to be a, a team leader, getting to, to direct the work of, of junior scientists. Like, I mean, I love all that stuff, right? But, mm-hmm. but I, I think maybe because I was so focused on that, I wasn't taking time to just enjoy the opportunity that to be a part of something at even at a ground level to just be like okay yeah I'm I'm pretty new I'm only I'm only three years into this deal like why mm-hmm. am I so future I mean future focus is good and I'm not discouraging that but I just I would encourage people not to miss the present mm-hmm. and um, and that that's been really important as I've gone if I've gotten older I've, I think I've gotten better at that and then I guess mm-hmm. the second piece of advice I'll share came from my PhD mentor and uh, he and I uh, were very close, still, still are. And uh, I remember when I was leaving the lab, he sat me down, and I was, I was, I'd already made a decision to go to GSK, and we talked about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, he said, I'm going to give you some advice, and if you'll learn it, you'll have a much happier career. And he said, it's going to sound, it sounds like I'm making it really profound, but I'm not sure it is. But, but he said, there's no such thing as the perfect job, and the sooner you understand that, the happier you'll be. And so I really took That's that to heart because yeah. he's, and I'll tell you, I've been in three different places for over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. He's exactly right. <laughs> There's no <laughs> such thing as the perfect job. Um, there's things that you like and things that you don't like and things that you're neutral about. Mm-hmm. Um, so my advice to people, whether I'm talking to faculty or students, is, you know, as long as there's more of the things that you like and more of the things that you enjoy and more of the things that are motivating, you're probably in a pretty good place. doesn't mean you shouldn't, shouldn't keep your eyes open for opportunities. I really believe in that. But um, you can mm-hmm. spend a lot of time, if you're focused on that minority of things that you don't like, Mm-hmm. You're kind of robbing yourself of some joy that's that's there to be had in those things that you like and enjoy and are good at. So I think mm-hmm. that's something that fortunately I did kind of take to heart um, early on. And, of course, it took me a while to begin to practice it um, effectively. But it's mm-hmm. something I, I, I go back to it to this day when there's things in this job. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to name any <laughs> specific things, but it's like, you know, there's, there's things. Oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't really enjoy this. This is this is not why I'm here. Yeah. Um, but you really start to say, but you know what? Like, um, 
later this week, I'm going to be doing something that I really do enjoy, that really is motivating. It really does provide satisfaction. And that's a, a place to to hang your hat and to, to be happy about. So I think that that's mm. the two pieces of advice I would share. Nice. Yeah. That's really good advice. I think, you know, every career you're always going to have something that you don't like for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, man, that's really good. Mm. Um, all right. Well, thank you uh, once again, Dr. Emmett, uh, for taking the time out of your uh, d- busy schedule uh, for this interview. And um, I really hope that, you know, it inspires other people to, you know, pursue you, even reach out to you to yeah. pick your brain even more. Oh, yeah. That, I'd welcome that. As you can tell, I, I, I don't mind talking, so um, <laughs> I would enjoy that. And I, I want to thank you for uh, some great questions and actually just for the invitation to participate. Really, I do appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, that ends our podcast. Special thanks once again to our guest speaker. We hope you learned a lot and had a great time listening to our conversation. And if you aren't already a member, consider joining the Industry Pharmacy Organization at UNTHSC. Thanks, and stay tuned for our next podcast.